and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by the TCT content team. I'm Laura Griffiths, TCT Head of Content, and I'm joined by, I'm going to go to Sam first. Samuel Davis, the Senior Content Producer. And Ollie and uh, Oliver Johnson, Junior Editorial Content Producer. And we're all here today for a very special recording of our Additive Insight podcast. It is the first one coming to you live from the new TCT Additive Manufacturing Network, a place where you can uh, learn from all our great years of content, make connections and network with your industry peers. Um, So thank you very much for joining us for this uh, very first session. We're going to be using today to run through some of the biggest 3D printing news stories from the last 12 months. And it's been a very, very busy 12 months. Um, Sam at the moment is compiling a list of a month by month and run down of some of the biggest developments and um, launches application stories and um, business deals all that sort of stuff and honestly Sam just looking through I, there's many that I'd forgotten about this year and it really has been a packed 12 months yeah well I think a lot of it kind of blurs because I can't remember for example when um, you know one of the stories we're going to cover today is the materialized QAM thing I can't remember exactly when materialized acquired link uh, link 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that might have been last year, but it's just full of that kind of stuff. And I think there was a January to March, maybe a little slow in terms of massive news. And then as soon as we get into late spring, early summer, there's some big acquisition deals, the AM forward thing. And then it's not really slowed down since maybe the last couple of weeks um, post format. Otherwise, it's been um, mad busy. Mm-hmm. And as you can see, uh, we're all joining each other separately today. I'm very jealous because um, Ollie is at home all nice and cosy <laughs> with his Christmas decorations on in the background. But I do just want to mention a quick note about the AM network. And um, We launched the network just a couple of weeks back now as a place for AM professionals to really collaborate with other additive manufacturing users. There's already tons of content on the platform for you to watch on demand. We've got over 70 presentations and podcasts, I think, so far. And that's only going to keep growing and growing and growing. We also have a knowledge bar, which features features all of our MTCT experts so if you've got additive manufacturing questions anything you want to know about any kind of challenges that you want answers to post that in the group and an expert will come back to you uh, with their industry knowledge so um, do share it pass it on to your peers and let's make this network as active and as useful as possible for everybody so I think let's just start diving into the news stories we are going to try and go chronologically, but with the way some of these news stories developed over the last year, um, we're going to kind of dart from place to place. So um, it will start chronologically and then go all over the place. <laughs> so let's start with that one that Sam's just mentioned, the COAM uh, platform launch by Materialize. So uh, Materialize announced the launch of its COAM platform, an open, open architecture software platform designed to manage the additive manufacturing production process more efficiently. I think this was around maybe March, April time that this was first announced, but we've seen plenty of developments on this since. So and um, with COAM, users of AM will have cloud-based access to a range of software tools from Materialize and third parties that allow AM operations to be planned, managed and optimized. Um, Materialize described at the time as a really important milestone um, in our industry. And at the time, Materialize said it planned to offer more than 25 software applications, including integration with its own magic system, AM Watch for shop floor data collection, that sort of thing. But it also um, involves connection with plenty of third party uh, providers too. And at the start, that was um, connections with AM Flow and Castor. They're amongst the first two on board. But as the years progressed, we've seen other companies 
teams um, get on board with this. And I think the overall theme of this collaborative effort has been a really interesting one and a nice one to see progress in the industry where we are seeing a lot more integration, a lot more openness. Um, and then at Form Next, Ollie, I know you actually spoke to Materialize when they announced, I think it was maybe seven more partners um, on board this platform, maybe seven in total. Um, but do you want to tell us like a little bit about what you found out there? Yeah, so it was seven new partners. I think they brought the total to 10, I think it did. Mm. Um, and I spoke to Bart van der Schuren, who is the CTO and he's also an EVP at Materialize. And the main sort of message that he had with this announcement was how important it was that companies within additive manufacturing uh, learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, because he felt that like that was a really important thing for people to do to <clears throat> not just um, you know not just to learn to you know things that can benefit themselves, but to just advance the industry as a whole. He he, he really felt like that was quite an important thing for the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, as I said, that collaboration element and the idea of um, openness and, and, and sharing, you know, it's something that like when I first started at TCT, I want to say eight years ago now, which is a long time, that openness wasn't necessarily there. It was starting to get there, but not really. And I think we spoke about this on our Formnax Editorial Roundtable, you know, Materialize has really been banging the drum for that collaborative spirit. They're all about, um, you know, this, this co-collaboration. I went to one of their events a few years ago and that was the entire theme. It was all about all their partners and how they're integrating with different technologies and just very much open to to sharing their technology and and getting other users on board and really just you know cross collaboration between knowledge sam have you got any kind of thoughts on that and did you get a chance to see any bit of form next i didn't at form next but i did um i did see them at rapid plus tct in may um so i Mm -hmm. i'm afraid at rapid and i think they I don't know. I don't think they launched out rapid, but like you said, I think it was maybe in the in the weeks earlier. It might have even been announced around that amount of time, um, early April. But um, collaboration is obviously a big thing for them. But Fried was was saying that it, this platform is something that's been missing um, or lacking in the AM industry, and I think you know that ties in with um, this tag that they've they've got. They I don't know potentially giving it to themselves, but you know this backbone yes. of the the industry, which. Um, I guess has some some grain of truth to it, and so they're, you know, they're trying to collaborate as I've always done. They've always been agnostic and find a solution for the industry to, um, you know, enable this this move to to production applications. It was developed, then they had the idea for a good while, and then um, I think historically, Materialize haven't really been a cloud-based solution, but they needed a cloud-based solution and a cloud-based company to really facilitate this idea and so that's where the acquisition of Link3D came in so I think in May when I spoke to them they were like um, Link3D is still a brand um, and so they were still on their stand at Rapid plus DCT um, some features Link3D features but um, as the months have gone on I think they said um, I didn't go to see them at IMTS but at IMTS the booth would be the same but by form next Link3D would be completely um, submerged into into materialize and um, at, at rapid they were giving out these um, like kind of leaflets which had um, explained how it worked and there were there were four keywords which are plan do check and learn so that's planning the, the additive manufacturing process enacting it so printing the parts checking it and then learning from that and I that's learning it as as human users but 
also some some AI AI algorithms rather, mm. uh, and, and making that whole thing more efficient. So there's there's planning tools and then there's engineering tools and that inspection capabilities, and then a, a kind of central data lake that will then allow users to provide consistency, connectivity. They can then segment that data. So if there's any sensitive data or competitors not wanting, you know, data to be to be transferred over. Um, they've kind of got that on, on lockdown, and and as as, as we've mentioned, then, then partners are being welcomed. Um, so there was AMFlow and Castor initially, seven more at um, at four next. Mm-hmm. I think this was a real key theme that we saw at Form Next too. We talked about it a little bit on our podcast, and and, and I mentioned it in my Form Next wrap up stuff. I mean software did seem to be the the headline story we're so used to going to an event like that and seeing you know massive hardware launches and while they were there and some of them are going to talk about a little bit later on some were more of a surprise than others um but i think the software really was the thing that shone you know we saw a lot of software um collaborations can't think who i'm trying to refer to right now but um, we saw we saw quite a lot of, of companies integrating with um, with hardware companies opening up their parameters to allow hardware companies to come in and really like make the most of, of their software capabilities and also likewise some software integrations that we'd seen early on in the year between things like uh, 3D systems, Opton, that sort of thing. We've seen the fruits of that now and how that's really progressing. So I think software has been a real um, headline story of the last few weeks. So uh, Materialize just really um, embodies that with all these different companies that they've got under this new platform. Yeah, when I was at Full Next, I spoke to a couple of um, hardware companies or companies that are primarily hardware, and I, I maybe take it with a pinch of salt because hardware are always going to say this, and <laughs> software are maybe say something different. But hard, the hardware guys are saying that the hardware is good and the software needs to catch up. Mm. And um, I think across the board, you know, you've got guys like Materialize um, who've always been there, but a, a company that we're going to come onto in a sec. Um, is is doing some some interesting stuff in software and and believe it's going to be their kind of USB going forward. Carbon the same doing doing a load on on software made their design engine um, available to users beyond Carbon and acquired Parameters. Um, so I think that is definitely a theme where um, hardware companies are, are are really thinking about that and maybe kind of taking some control over that and then. It's good to see, you know, maybe the software leader materialize, realize that, as it always has done, can't do it all on its own. These 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 platforms and these tools all need to be integrated to benefit the user, so they're not hopping one from one platform to another. Mm-hmm. And what is a really kind of rigid and cumbersome process. Mm-hmm. And Dindrite was the company that I was referring to. <laughs> um, one of many. Um, so we will move on to that next story because you've just made a very nice segue, Sam. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on to story two. And this does still follow uh, quite nicely chronologically. So um, Mark Forged uh, was just one company that continued this trend for mergers and acquisitions. Although I will say, I feel like even though we have seen them happen this year, it's not been quite as intense as it was the year before where it felt like pretty much every week we were getting a massive shock acquisition and then by the end of the year it was just like oh right okay another one um but this year we did see quite a few meaningful ones and mark forge uh, made a couple so the first one at the start of the year was the acquisition of um, teton which is another software company sam i'm going to let you talk a little bit about this one but um, they acquired um, teton simulation back in april in order to build out its software offerings and um, the deal will see uh, mark forge integrate that technology as an add-on to its iga software 
software solution to provide customers with a more streamlined cloud-based workflow for part design, optimization, validation, all the way to printing, that sort of thing. Um, and so the, the companies really describe this as a core, which is what you were sort of saying there, Sam, you know, that they want software to be a real core offering from them. Um, do you want to explain a little bit more about that? Because you did a really great explainer on this and, and why they'd done that. And then obviously we'll move on to the, the, the next acquisition that they made. Told you, we've okay, got little yeah. darting all over the place. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, we're just kind of on the developed as a year and on as well, because at Formnext they kind of released, um, they released it to market in, in their Iger platform. So a bit of background on, on Teton, they they came to market um, maybe, it was maybe last year, maybe middle of last year, I think, and they, they were like a plug into the Cura platform initially. Um, and it's basically a slicing simulation software. And then they partnered with Big Rep, and I think they maybe announced a partnership with Stratasys as well, mm. their GrabCAD platform. So they were, they, they kind of introduced slowly, but, um, and, and their background, the founders there were, um, they founded a company, and I forget its name, but it was acquired by Autodesk. So they're um, quite experienced, quite quite a capable team with a lot of credentials, and they, they noticed a, a gap in the market in the AM space, have, have developed that solution over a few years, brought it to market um, quite quickly, I think, got a couple of case studies out there, and then in, in maybe April, May time, Mark Forge came in and um, acquired that business, and um, that was you know, to enhance their software offering, which already included the, the Iga platform. Plus, they've got that uh, blacksmith inspection um, software, which I think they launched at Rapid Plus TCT in like 2019. Mm. Um, and, and even that's taken a while to really get it off the ground and get it out there. But um, but now they have these tools all in in the, um, in the same Iga platform. Um, and, and Teton basically, and Smart Slice, which is, is now just called Simulation of Capital S, um, is designed to just reduce the amount of trial and error and prototyping. Um, although it came to market as an kind of an open platform that could be plugged into third party software offerings, um, Mark Forge has decided to close that off since acquiring it. So, they're keeping those capabilities to themselves. It's a um, competitive advantage for them at this point. They've, um, with a few tweaks, kind of enabled those capabilities, which had initially been designed for Polymer FFF. It can now work with their composite technology as well. Um, and they launched simulation in November, maybe, I think it was the first air format. And what they've done is a kind of free trial period run into April. So all Mark Forge users will be able to access those capabilities um, over the next four, four months, was five, counting last month. Mm. And then um, at that point, I think Mark Forge are going to, you know, get a load of feedback, make those changes, put it back out there as a um, as a subscription or or you know a license or whatever. Um, and and yeah, I think it was a pretty significant development because it goes against the grain of this industry's opening up and Mark Forge have decided to close. But um, the interesting thing, as you mentioned, Laura, is that when I was speaking to them to do that explainer piece, um, I was told that Mark Forge, A, don't see themselves as an FFF company, which we'll, we'll come on to kind of explain yeah. <laughs> in a little bit, a minute. But they, they also think that software will be considered the most unique thing about what they do, um, which I found pretty interesting because I think most of us think of the uh, Mark Forge as a hardware company, but they see themselves as a, you know, more than that, obviously. 
Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I think what's positive from this is it's one of the things they mentioned in the, the announcement at the time is that um, the idea behind this acquisition is to advance its, its leadership in using software to increase process automation. And when we did a feature at the start of this year on kind of the biggest industry challenges and, and what really needs to improve and automation was one of the biggest ones, especially when we're trying to get to these production applications. And so it really feels like um, plugging those gaps um, where you know th- things are missing. And as you say, Sam, the idea of um, this software being used as a a way to reduce that element of trial and error, which we know is incredibly frustrating, especially when, as we talked about before, you're dealing with lots of different um, software packages in order to get to that final part. Um, it just feels like um, a really important step in addressing those headaches that come with not being able to automate this process when we're talking about these end-use applications. Um, but let's just quickly, because I realise we're definitely going to run out of time today and we're only on the second story. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will just quickly move on to the other half of that, which was just a couple months later, uh, Mark Forge then made another acquisition. Um, even though they've said they want to you know, be seen as this, this software company, um, this does fall into the idea that they're not just an FFF technology company. So um, they acquired, acquired Metal Bindejet in firm Digital Metal. Um, so the company said it viewed Bindejetting as a highly scalable additive manufacturing technology for production grade parts. And they believe that digital metals often provides high precision, best in class part quality and reliability. And the company also said it further believes that it can enhance the capabilities of digital metals Banerjet technology with these integrated software capabilities that they've obviously now adopted and obviously been working on for a very long time with that existing software portfolio. So, um, I mean, again, Sam, I know that you did the explainer on this, but did they give any more insight into um, the idea to expand to, to Banerjet, what they, um, what kind of they expect to get from from having Banerjee in their portfolio? Uh, yeah, they did. So they, they told me that um, they'd been looking at Banerjee, um for a good few years. Um, and I imagine probably other technologies as well, um, given, given you know, they, they up until this year were serving, um, you know, one specific kind of, of 3D printing technology, mm. albeit with, with polymers and, and composites and metals, but that same kind of process. Um, and they they basically said that um, there were two things really. One is it's obviously going to kind of expand their addressable market in terms of applications and, and industries and also volume of parts. Um, and I think the other really was um, kind of looking at that binder jet market, metal binder jet market. There's a few companies out there with um, technologies, but there's not a lot. And the ones that are out there with their own technologies, and again, we're going to come on to one of those um, if we've got the time um, a little <laughs> later. Um, like their their HP and their G and their desktop metal, and they're pretty big companies. I might be forgetting someone, and sorry if I am. Um, but basically, digital metal was there and has been there for nearly twenty years, I think. Mm. Um, and I think they just, I guess, saw the opportunity if they're going to do more. Uh, if Mark Forge are going to do binder jet technology off their own back, that's going to take a while. I mean, it's taken X1, for example, 20 plus years to get the technology where it is today. Um, and so I think an acquisition was the quickest route to offering that technology. I think there was maybe also a little bit of somebody who's going to acquire digital metal. It should be us. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they, they went and did that. Um, and, and as I say, they don't, they don't recognize 
themselves as um, just purely an FFF extrusion company. Um, but equally, they do acknowledge that Bindejet is still in its early phase. Um, so it's not like acquiring that that company and that technology is going to, you know, transform the business overnight. I think there's there's work to do there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so they'll, they'll get going with that. What they did say, though, is um, what Digital Metal don't have and what Mark Forge do have is this global go-to-market um, network. And we've heard that a few times with some of these acquisitions that have happened over the last couple of years. Stratasys and Origin is one that jumps to mind where one company's got this really um, capable technology, but they just don't have the capacity to actually distribute it. And Mark Forge have done a really good job over the of the 10 or so years they've been in business of building out an international um, distribution network and when um, and when you know the, the technologies are ready they can they can push them out so I think still we're, we're probably waiting to see a massive jump in the adoption of bandage technology and application of bandage technology but I think um, Mark Forge have the infrastructure there so then it's just a matter of I guess um, like standard that technology and, and making sure it's as repeatable um, as it can be so that it can fulfill the potential that plenty of companies in, in this industry have in that technology. Mm-hmm. I think what's also interesting about digital metal was that um, when they came to market, the parts that we saw were very much these tiny, you know, very yeah. high precision parts, things that could go inside watches, that 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 sort of, you know, those sorts of really um almost like micro manufacturing um applications and so it, it almost feels like a, a niche within itself there as well and i'm not sure if the technology has now um progressed past the point where that is expanded but it it also feels like quite a um it's sort of a, a different take on on that, that side of the market so that's also interesting and it will be interesting to see what kind of applications come out of that and as you say sam how the technology progresses now with all these capabilities uh, married together under the the mark forge portfolio um, moving on now, because I'm very aware that because Ollie only joined us halfway through the years, a lot of these mm-hmm. news stories, which we're going to be waiting for Ollie to comment on, <laughs> um, the next one um, was launched around uh, rapid time. So we're going to go into May now, just in time for rapid, which was very, very perfect timing. President Biden announced the AM Forward initiative, a new program designed to support SME supplier adoption of 3D printing. So the idea is that um, large manufacturers will be able to support um, SMEs with their adoption of additive manufacturing in supply chain. So some of the largest uh, large companies that were initially um, initially signed up to this were GE Aviation, Honeywell, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon and Siemens Energy. But since we've also seen um, Boeing and Northrop Grumman also join that list. Um, the story tied in very nicely with a continuing theme, like I say continuing from like the last few years, which has been on supply chain and how do we get additive manufacturing into supply chain? Is that easier with companies with uh, like a long legacy or is it easier with these, you know, more agile, newer companies, that sort of thing? And so um, I think this is a really important part of that because it is about helping those manufacturers that are part of those very complex supply chains and how to adopt additive manufacturing for um, localizing manufacturing, for reshoring manufacturing if we've been able to uh, manufacture hard to source parts on demand to overcome challenges like we've seen over the last few years when um, you know we, we really need parts very quickly and um, if we can't get hold of them that sort of thing and um, so it was a very interesting development and I know that Sam when you and I were at, um, in Detroit this year back in May we did ask a few companies for the the general take and I think it was mainly positive from the industry I think that any kind of um, 
any kind of spotlight attention that comes from the government um, on this industry is a good thing. Um, there was also a little bit of cautiousness around the fact that we have seen um, you know, the spotlight shone in this industry before, which has really helped, and now it's kind of not done very much, and then people become disenfranchised. We know that it was part of um, President Obama's State of, um, State of Union a few years back now, and then um, you know we've seen hype waves and all this kind of stuff happen when we've seen a lot of outside attention on the industry. But this feels like it's got um, a bit more... Um, I want to say it, it feels a little bit more sensible, it's a little bit more, more measured. It, it seems to be really thinking about where additive might be able to fit in and using those existing capabilities. These companies, like the Siemens of the world, like Lockheed Martins, who've been using additive manufacturing for a very, very long time, using their capabilities to be able to really just push that out into these um, smaller companies. Um, so, Sam, I wondered if you've got any kind of like initial, um, just any kind of thoughts on, on some of those takeaways from the companies that you spoke to. What was the general feel that you got? The general, I think the consensus is that it's a positive thing in and of itself, just that um, the US government is engaging with it and sees the potential in it. Um, I think I had one comment that was, um, kind of just had a different view on how a technology should be adopted. And I think that comes from someone, um, and I won't name him because if you read the, the article on my website, you'll, you'll know it is. Um, that, I mean, that comes from them not being in, they've been in AM for maybe like seven or eight years, but they've not always been in AM. So their take was basically that, you know, that what should decide whether a technology gets adopted is that there's the business case. Mm. And so the market should determine whether a technology um, is is picked up and applied. Um, some kind of thought, well, it all sounds great, but you actually need to action it, um, which I think is where I would kind of align myself because it, it definitely has the potential to be like, you know, maybe the biggest development in, in this industry for a good while. But that depends on all of the pledges that were made and there were plenty of them by all seven who've signed up um, to kind of be followed through with and to actually be implemented. Mm. Um, so some of the, you know, some of those pledges were kind of targets set for a, a certain percentage of small and medium enterprises to compete on quotes for parts and then to receive the business for outsourced parts. There were pledges to train um, the, the workforce of, of those SME suppliers um, and, and participate in workforce development programs. I think there were standards development um, pledges made as well, um, which is obviously another important thing, and particularly for those guys who work in, um, you know, aerospace. You listed um, a few of them before, you know, Lockheed and Boeing, and they're in those industries where they, they really need to know um, that the parts are going to work. Um, but I think my, I don't know, my overall thought is, as somebody who lives not in the US but in the UK, is that it was nice to see some government involvement with a bit of thought and a bit of structure behind it, not just supporting individual companies with grants for specific projects um, for very you know, niche or specific things that solve those problems there, but trying to make AM adoption easier for a, you know, kind of like a, a nationwide community of manufacturers, because America in particular is full of those small and medium manufacturing companies, not just the Lockheed's and the GE Aviations and Boeing's of the world. They've got, you know, like thousands of these, uh, what they call mom and pop shops. Um, and 
they can't access additive manufacturing technology that easily because it costs so much. Um, and so it's nice to just see a, a really strategic way of kind of meeting those guys halfway and, and getting the buy-in of some of the biggest manufacturers and users of, of AM as well. So solve that issue because I think what we saw in the, in the pandemic, and you could argue that it hasn't quite fulfilled even that like bit of hype that we had there just yet. Um, but there was there are obviously issues with traditional supply chains as they are today, and there are obviously um, ways in which this technology can help. But you you need to make it affordable, and you need to actually kind of help companies along the way because it's a big commitment. Um, and if you're you know if we look at those pledges where it's standards and it's workforce development and it's training and yeah. it's being able to afford the technology. It's fine if you've got one of those things, but you need the others to go along with it. If you can afford to buy uh, a 3D printer, but you have no idea how to use it, then what's the point? Mm -hmm. So you need all of those things to be developed um, concurrently um, along the way. And I, I think potentially this, um, this might solve that. Um, and I guess it would be nice if other governments and other countries could do similar. Yeah, I think while we wait to see what the um, how this actually materialises going forward, I think that was the other interesting part of this, the fact that we got to then walk around TCT360 and speak to UK-based um, companies and UK-based end users and ask for their thoughts on um, you know, whether they would like something like this, whether it would be important to have this in the UK. And the general consensus was, yes, we would, because we've had... Um, you know, we've had the, the um, additive manufacturing um, UK and uh, the industry report a few years back now, which, um, you know, this was you know, a great report. Lots of, you know, um, very well informed minds came together to produce this and then it didn't really do anything in the end. And then we saw um, the government um, industrial manufacturing report and there was like one mention of additive manufacturing in the whole thing. And we've just never really um, we've never really taken that next step. We've never really had our government take very much note of the technology. Um, so I think that it's been quite interesting to see the reactions of that um, just in the UK, but I'm sure that there's similar reactions happening um, you know, across the globe. But then again, there are other initiatives that we've seen in other places, um, like China, for example, who have had these initiatives to support additive manufacturing technology. So, um, yeah, I think the, the global response to this will also be a very interesting thing um, to watch and to see whether it is something that could be replicated. Because as you say, Sam, it's answering a lot of those major challenges that we have around additive manufacturing adoption. You know, you, could, you can buy a machine, but if you don't know how to actually implement it, if you don't know how to work all the stuff that comes around it, then it's, it, it's, it's not really worth even having. So, um, yes, quite interesting how that moves going forward. And especially when we get to Rapid Plus TCT um, around springtime to see if there's any kind of, um, you know, feedback on that, any companies that have potentially been um, involved in it. Yeah, I would just add on that. I think it would be, <clears throat> what would be nice as well is if the, the, comp the seven companies that are involved so far, if they could be um, <clears throat> as open and transparent as, mm -hmm. as they can along the way. Yeah. So we, like, because I, I think at the moment there's been very little, um, I know there was an announcement the other day with um, Centavia and Lockheed and, and they were going to do some some research partnership, but there wasn't an awful lot of detail even in that announcement. And it would be nice to know exactly, you know, because if, if for example, the pledges of... Um, I will be really quick on this. Like, we want to get a certain percentage of 
um, of, of quotes out to these smaller companies. Maybe if we could understand how tangible and how realistic that actually is, that would also help. Because saying 30 to 50 percent of, of quotes for parts that we outsource, that seems like a massive amount. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. We do it. So if it isn't possible, then that, I guess that's fine, but we then need to rein in the expectation a little bit. And what we don't want is that we never hear any of anything from it. And then in a few years, you know, people are being cynical about the idea mm-hmm. because I think the idea is good. And maybe, you know, not all good ideas work, but the idea is good. There might be a different way for it to work. But those involved, I think, need to be as transparent as they can about it. It's a similar conversation to what we're having around additive manufacturing, sustainability, that sort of thing, and having this accountability through life cycle analysis. We, we really need that same accountability to see if this stuff actually works. As you say, Sam, you know, are these quite lofty expectations or, you know, are we actually going to see those kinds of numbers uh, materialise? And um, yeah, I do think we need to see those companies have stepped forward to really report back on what has actually happened. Because, yeah, we're probably not going to see these numbers within 12 months that's that's just probably not realistic um but you know how long that is actually going to take to get to those figures um if we do um and another quick thing <laughs> a really good point that was made in our magazine this year by um two researchers candice miewski and aaron walsh um here in the uk was that um what would make their life easier in research is if other researchers would publish their failings and they don't do it they just tell everyone about the, the successes, but mm. if you if you tell people what the failings were, then they can either approach that um, issue in a different way, or they know that that doesn't work. So let's pull our resources and our energy somewhere else. And I I think that applies in any any walk of life and in any kind of aspect of an industry. That if we're honest about the things that don't work, then we can just focus on the things that do work mm-hmm. and make that. Better. Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Paul Miller, 3D Systems Materials Product Marketing Manager, introduces Duraform PAX, a new novel SLS nylon photopolymer that promises great mechanical properties for prototypes and end-use parts, long-term stability, and unexpected low cost of ownership. Duraform PAX is a new family of products that uh, we developed in partnership with uh, Adams Grill Tech. And what we're really excited about is its innovation in a space where there hasn't been a ton of types of materials. Duraform PAX is durable, it's tough, um, it has really high elongation, and is really flexible. So it opens up a lot of application possibilities. It prints at a very low temperature, which is actually one of its strengths because it's easier on printers and has a really high recycling rate. What we're also really excited about is some of the operational benefits. It is faster to handle. Uh, you can remove it, the part cake, the machine faster after printing, and the breakout of parts. And, and that's where some of the financial benefits help our customers as well. When people hear new and novel, they, they typically jump to, it's gotta be expensive. Um, but, but our pricing strategy with Duraform PAX was intended to encourage adoption as a go-to material, particularly for those customers that are looking for prints with unspecified properties. So you, you still get all those great mechanical properties that we, we talked about, but at generally a lower cost. And then it's the operational benefits. It's the ease of printing. It's the operator intervention, the less service. You don't have any sublimation, which is one of the big challenges people experience with PA11s. Our customers have come to us and said they're really excited to be able to offer an SLS 
material uh, to their customers that, that they can ship within 24 hours, which is, is truly remarkable. This material is intended for end-use parts. You've got long-term stability and in some cases properties that make it indistinguishable from injection molded parts. Can you talk about that? Today we have two different variants and it's a family that we expect that will, will grow in the future. We have a, a natural color and a black color. We've tested the color and the mechanical properties out over five years for indoor and outdoor over uh, a year and a half. And the tensile strength, the elongation and color all hold up from the look and the aesthetics of the material, particularly when you vapor hone it, you're able to get some translucency that opens up new applications. So anything where you're trying to look at liquids and anything within walls, you'll get that really nice translucency. It's, it's been described from our customers as looking like a, a rigid polypropylene. For the black material, uh, instead of the translucency, you get an additional sheen. So some of these sample applications that we've made is we've introduced texture onto the parts and then vapor honed it. By doing that, it really looks like an injection molded plastic. One of the examples I like to talk about is some of our engineers that work on all these different materials in, in our office and showing these uh, vapor honed SLS parts, people are shocked to believe that they're, they come from SLS. To learn more, head over to mytct.co forward slash 3dspod or visit 3dsystems.com. So moving on to the next story now, and Ollie, you can finally chime in. <laughs> um, this was also from around May time, but again, another story that developed um, following that uh, throughout the rest of the year. And I know um, Ollie's probably had the most recent um, story on this next one. Um, so back in May, Desktop 3D Printing Leaders, uh, Makerbot and Ultimaker agreed a business combination that saw them merge together with an additional $62.4 million in additional funding announced for the new entity. And we were all like, what's it going to be called? What, what, what can we can we vote what it's going to be called? And it's called Ultimaker with a capital M. Nice and easy. Um, so it's, it was all very unexpected. I remember Sam, you and I were sat in a meeting at the time, sort of like checking our phones, and then this news popped up, and it was like, oh, this is exciting. Um, but it was a pretty big news story at the time to see these two brands that have quite similar technologies and over the years have really progressed from kind of more... Um, hobbyists even I, I want to not quite consumer but they kind of um they've moved on to really make professional engineering use cases that sort of thing you know it is not uncommon to see an ultimaker desktop fdm 3d printer um next to a busy manufacturing line at volkswagen that sort of thing and likewise um, with makerbot too so they've really um they've really progressed to kind of along the same route so but i don't think i ever expected these two companies um to come together so at the time and um, both ceos came together to sort of um to both manage the the new entity and i spoke to them both um around the time of, of rapid plus tct and just to get their thoughts on it and it was very much just about how um you know there's a lot of synergy there. there's a lot of things they can do with both of their capabilities to really move things forward some of the things that the community were concerned about at the time was what is going to happen um, to things like um, Thingiverse, you know, it's, it's a platform that a lot of people have relied on, but also could it be um, improved? Is it, you know, are we going to keep that? And, you know, the general thought was, yes, it's going to be kept and we're going to build it, make it better. Um, and then also uh, the idea of um, um, Cura slicing software too, what was going to happen to that? Again, used by so, so many people. I can't remember the figures now, but millions of, of, of users. And so 
Um, it was really important for people to, to find out what was going to happen with these uh, very valuable pieces of software. Again, circling back to, to software. Um, but both things are staying, both things are going to be built on. Um, moving the story further along now, uh, former MakerBot CEO uh, Nadav Goshen is now t- um, taking over the company. So he's now the CEO of Ultimaker with a capital M. I don't know how long it's going to be till I stop having to <laughs> stop having to say that. Um, but very, very recently, they announced the, the first product to come out of this um, new entity because so far they've said that um, like most, most of the kind of current product lines are remaining. It's just still going to be able to get hold of, of you know, Ultimaker, SLI machines, MakerBot methods, that, that sort of thing. All of those, those product lines are remaining. Um, but of course, we were going to see um, joint developments happening, you know, kind of combining those capabilities. But Ollie, you spoke to Nadav uh, very recently about the first machine to come out of that, a new education focus machine which we know uh, MakerBot has had a real big play in for many many years now with thousands of machines um, in universities in schools they've got um, the cloud um, software platform for teaching in classrooms linked up with Google classroom that sort of thing so tell us a little bit about uh, this machine launch so this machine launch it's an extension sort of a, a new addition to the MakerBot sketch range of like education focused 3d printers um, it's the MakerBot Sketch Large, so it's like a, it's got a larger build volume. It can fit a whole classrooms worth of prints on the on one build plate. Um, it's compatible with Google Classroom, uh, like you mentioned. And something that Nadav really uh, emphasised was getting these printers into the hands of educators and children and showing them the next, teaching the next generation about this technology because they'll be the people using it in like you know 20, 30 years. Um, so that was something that he really <clears throat> emphasised that the new partnership will, you know, will focus on. Uh, and the new system in particular, uh, it's compatible with MakerBot materials, MakerBot tough materials, and it comes with three schools of MakerBot PLA, mm-hmm. and it benefits from the education ecosystem, which, as I said, can be, can be connected to Google Classroom uh, with the cloud print 3D printing software. And it allows users to slice and prepare prints, prints just from a browser. So it's really easy to use just for a teacher in a classroom, mm-hmm. in a school. Yeah, I think um, a, a few things on that. I think it was great to see, um, first of all, the first machines come out of this collaboration because um, I know at the collaboration, this merger, sorry, um, I know at the time we were kind of wondering, okay, how is this going to look now? How these quite similar technologies, they're both uh, mainly polymer extrusion-based processes. Um, you know, how, how is that going to work going forward? Um, you know, would one technology lead more than, more than others? How would they bring those capabilities together? Um, and like I say, knowing that MakerBot's background that, it's great to see that education focus and really continue because it's it's a very important market i mean just in our recent issue we've had a, a big feature on uh, 3d printing and education and just the struggle to um not only get 3d printers into schools but also to be able to teach the teachers to use them to then impart that into their classroom so as all the things you've just mentioned there ollie you know i think that's an important part of that in being able to you know not just provide printers but really provide that um even though i don't like this word ecosystem um around it <laughs> you knew that was coming guys 
guys, uh, to, <laughs> to really just uh, make sure that it's, um, that it's accessible and that it can be integrated into classrooms and really um, put to work in, in, in meaningful ways. Um, but I think it's also important as well that, you know, we're, I'm sure we're going to see um, over the next year or so maybe other things come out of there because when, um, when I sat down with both CEOs around the, the announcement of the, the merger, you know, they said we could expect to see um, developments happening soon. This is obviously the first one. I do wonder now how that is going to progress and if we're going to see, um, you know, an industrial focus machine maybe that's launched under this new brand. Sam, I don't know if you've, I know we don't want to make any predictions, but I don't know if you've got any, any thoughts on that. Um, I have a, <clears throat> a couple of thoughts. One is that for someone who doesn't like using the word ecosystem, you are the only one on this podcast who repeatedly uses it. Um, <laughs> on the branding, I wonder if when they called it Ultimaker with a capital M, they realised that everyone would just start saying Ultimaker with a capital M, which is probably not the intention. Maybe. But I think, what I think is interesting is that um, a very, very, very simple and not necessarily the correct way of just dividing what each brand does is that MakerBot takes care of education and, and all to make a professional, but I imagine it'll be a lot more difficult to actually decide um, how they, because I think they have mentioned, they, they, they kind of said that product, product lines from both companies will be continued, but mm. they're going to work towards consolidating yes. business and the production lines. So, because obviously there's, there's um, a bunch of overlap in those products, so maybe they, they go off things like sales and cost and the margins in between two to decide. I think um, from the interview maybe you did, Laura, they they basically said that Thingiverse and Cura will be all right. They're mm -hmm. going to stick around. And um, I, th I think um, Jürgen von Ollen, obviously he's taken a step back, but he was describing the process of downloading files from Thingiverse and then pushing it through Cura before printing the part as, um, as a perfect, uh, perfect fit. Um, so, so they'll be They'll be sticking around. I think they've said as well they're going to, you know, they're going to ramp up R and D efforts, develop new products in both education and professional, and expand their presence in the Americas and, mm. and Asia Pacific and um, Europe, the Middle East and, and Africa. Um, I guess you know, we, I think we've we've touched on it before, and, and obviously we we don't want to make any um, erroneous assumptions, but. Um, there may there may be as with the you know as we've seen with desktop metal for example acquired a bunch of companies there may be um, kind of a, a, a cause or a need for redundancies mm. um, a host of other companies this year don't know whether we'll have time to go into any of them but potentially for other reasons like you know market conditions but that added to the fact that these are two very very similar companies coming together means that that at some point might might be the case but it will be interesting to see how it how it all moves forward. I think we've discussed previously that, you know, from a purely from a perception and not having the, the stats to hand these seem like the two biggest players in that market. Mm. And um, I feel like that will have an impact on other companies of this type who who are gonna have to maybe do something because this the 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 merger between MakerBot and, and Automaker is presumably taking up a big market share in that desktop 3D printing prosumer um, kind of segment in the market. So so how that as a kind of subset girl all developed over the next few years would be interesting as well. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try and speed through the last few stories because just as you mentioned then Sam, I do want to try and touch on some of those uh, 
other stories very quickly towards the end. So uh, moving on to the next one, uh, which happened, I think, was it around the summer, uh, this next story? So um, Nikon agreed a voluntary public takeover of SLM Solutions. Maybe it was around September time. I'm not too sure. September it was, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, So yeah, this was probably the, I want to say this was the biggest news story this year. It was... um, it shouldn't have, it was not about having favourites. Um, <laughs> um, but we have seen this develop um, since over the last few months, particularly um, around Form Next. Um, so they agreed a voluntary public takeover of the firm for all its outstanding shares, a cash consideration of 20 euros a share. Um, this is obviously a massive deal because Nikon, we've seen them kind of dip their toe into additive manufacturing before. I remember at TCT Japan, maybe back in 2019, I want to say. Um, I remember seeing them tease a concept machine on the show floor. It was kind of a a, a multi uh, multi capability machine that had like engraving and things like that in it. Uh, but that was showing uh, some metal capabilities there. It was it was not a, com- a commercialized machine, but it really showed that they were taking an interest in this technology. Um, and then after that, we obviously we've seen this SLM solutions deal, and then we've seen a number of others as well happen around the same time. The company also put out an announcement which talked about their strategy moving forward and how you know they really want to be seen as this this leader in metal additive manufacturing which sam i'm going to get you to talk about a little bit in a moment because again you did another really great explainer article on this um but it, it that was um, an acquisition not an acquisition sorry investment in um, hybrid manufacturing technologies which of course is slightly different because we're talking about um, um emerging there of advanced manufacturing capabilities um and then also a company as well which isn't a manufacturer of um, AM machines but rather a user of, of additive manufacturing and um, so really really huge story uh, really interesting it's going to be um, quite it's it's going to be quite telling to see how the capabilities really marry together for these because you've got Nikon who are real leaders in this like um, optical uh, technology and it's those those are the kind of things that we can see integrated into um, SLM's technology potentially um, in order to really better that because it, there's just a real um, idea of these companies being able to really complement each other and Sam I know you went to the very first press conference that they did around Form Next to talk about uh, this acquisition so you got a few more details there I know it's not closed yet it's still um, ongoing but um, if you just tell us a little bit about what you found out there and, and what these companies expect to, to really get from each other. Yeah so I think as you said the deal is not closed and I think it's expected to close maybe in the first half of next year but I think the fact that Nikon with that uh, Alongside SLM, mm. our form next press conference seems to suggest that they're you know they're confident that there's not going to be any issues um, with that. Um, I think what what we learned um, at the at the press conference from memory was that um, that Nikon wasn't like wasn't this wasn't part of the plan per se. I think they made their investments in in um, more 3D, for example, who I think are a user of SLM technology. Mm. And it probably happened as they've seen this opportunity, um, probably started to look at that technology. More 3D obviously break that technology. Um, I think, um, you know, G a few years ago wanted to um, acquire SLM um, back in the summer of 2016, which I think is a, a pretty good indicator that <laughs> there's a as a good company with good people who know what they're doing there. Um, and so, as you say, there's there's plenty of potential synergy with the technology offering at Nikon with, with what SLM um, is doing. There's also um, 
Sam O'Leary, the, the CEO of Esalam, was, um, was mentioning this culture of relentless innovation at, at Esalam, which I would imagine um, the, the reality of that plus the marketing of that is probably quite attractive for a company like Nikon. So, you know, at, at Fornex, they, um, on our front cover, they have, um, you know, the, the first image of that 1.5 meter in the Z-axis machine. <laughs> they announced at the back end of the week that um, they're developing a, a machine that's um, going to be capable of printing parts up to three meters tall. So there's all of that going on. Nikon has this 2030 vision of, of really kind of entering into digital manufacturing. Mm. Um, so they've launched DED systems and made investments in hybrid and more 3D. There's another company that I've forgotten the name of, and then they're acquiring SLM. Um, so there's all of that going on. What, what is an interesting development, um, and the only information that I don't think we've already said on another podcast, is that I think during the week of Form Next or immediately after Form Next, um, Nikon announced that it has secured approximately 92.38% of the share capital of SLM. So mm. if you remember when they announced the deal, it was um, they'd acquired 61.1% of the shares acquired from the key shareholders. And then they commenced this acceptance period for the rest of SLM shareholders to sell their shares. Mm-hmm. ended in mid-November. Um, so... Basically, why that's important is that within all of the information that Nikon had put out there once they'd announced the acquisition deal was that one of the things that they they are going to look into is delisting SLM solutions from the stock exchange. And to do that, they needed 90% of the shares. And so once they've converted all the convertible bonds issued by SLM, and which are due in 2026, they will then be able to delist the company if they want to. So that is the, I think the only development since the last time we talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I imagine once the deals all kind of ratified next year, we'll be able to get a bit more of an understanding of the vision and, and I guess a bit of a roadmap as to so what I'm good saying there are these synergies, but what does that actually look like in real terms? Mm-hmm. I guess, can we expect to see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you say, Sam, we did talk about this um, in, a, in a lot of detail on a previous episode of Additive Insights. So I think when this show goes out on our regular uh, podcast platforms on Monday, I'll definitely put a link to that episode in there and also a link to your explainer article because um, it really goes into into more detail about um, the why and the potential with, with this deal. And I, I know you got some thoughts from um, from SLM. And I think, did you get thoughts from Nikon as well in the end? I can't quite remember. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still waiting for them, but I think they'll only talk once the deal's through, but SLM yeah. gave a few statements and um, and then we obviously had some detail later on at the at the press conference, but I imagine once the deal was closed, they'll um, hopefully be open to doing an interview or, or similar. Mm-hmm. We'll go on to um, our last major story, which again is another one that we've talked about um, quite heavily on a previous episode, but then the more I thought about it, I think we've spoke about it plenty of times because it was HP's um, launch of its uh, Metal Jet S100 um, solution, IMTS. And the reason why I've talked about this several times before is because they first announced the technology four years prior. Was it four years? It was yeah. IMTS in 2018. Yeah. So we spoke about it back then. Um, and then we've obviously spoke about it since when more applications have come out. Because I think with this machine and this technology, it has been a very... Um, 
it's been a very nice um, launch period to watch because as much as it's taken a very long time, we've seen a lot of application stories come out um, in between that initial sort of teaser and then the official machine launch that we saw at IMTS in September. Um, and we've seen this through um, some of HP's manufacturing uh, network partners who have been manufacturing parts for some major um, companies, major automotive companies, consumer products companies, that sort of thing. So we've seen um, a lot of proof of this technology and now it's available um, and HP have kind of intentionally done that to make sure the technology is out there and works and it's a similar story to what they've just done with the new Polymer platform that they launched at Formnext as well for um, 3D printing um, white parts. They've done a similar thing there where they've tested that out with these manufacturing partners first and then they've put it out into the market. Um, so Sam, you were actually at IMTS um, this year, um, which was nice to, for us to be back at, at an event like that. And of course to see, I think it's very different to see the industry um, within a, a wider um, trade show that doesn't just focus on additive manufacturing and to almost see how, how it fits in and, and also how small it is compared to the rest of the advanced uh, manufacturing landscape yeah it was like three aisles wide of a of a, of a hall that mm. maybe you know, the size of one of those like four next halls so it and it only had i think a, oh, i can't remember the number like 100 exhibitors mm-hmm. um but i think the what's interesting about this is that they hp have intentionally made the initial announcement at imts and then launched the s100 machine um which is now available to buy um at IMTS and and that's because um, they they see this as a disruptor of metal manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't see it as something that is going to take share off. And maybe this is a um, like shooting shots at their competitors, but they don't see it as something that's going to take share off their of other three D printing OEMs. It's it's taking market share off um, metal manufacturing mm. um, OEMs. And, and they see, I think they see more potential in the metal market than even the polymer market. And I know if we can just touch on the, the multi jet fusion technology for a second, they're obviously talking to you at Fallen Explorer about having 170 million parts mm-hmm. now printing that technology. So um, they, they to say that it, there's more potential on this side of the business is, is A, a big claim, but B, that's because um, they, they see polymer manufacturing technologies is more modern and more kind of sophisticated than the metal manufacturing technology. So, so they see the, the potential there. Currently, they're only printing um, stainless steel 316L and, and 174PH. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are qualified, but I think tool steel, Inconel, copper, brass were all, um, excuse me, mentioned as, as possibilities as, um, as were like titanium and, um, no, sorry, titanium and aluminium were ruled out. But, but there are potential, um, potentially more, more materials to come. As you say, there's already been a few end-use applications come out. And, and actually what was interesting at MTS is that when they started the service offering with GKN and Palmatech, they actually didn't expect by the time they launched the machine and caveat that with the fact that initially it was a two-year um, run-up to launching the machine and, and it ended up being four years for various reasons, including um, the pandemic, but they didn't expect there to be applications at production scale by the time they launched the machine. Mm. And they had four, um, and one of those was the Schneider Electric air filter circuit breakers, which um, they were kind of promoting at IMTS, and they, they feature like 
they've got a new shape that reduces gas pressure and, and impact because they've got some lattice elements mm. which aren't possible or practically nearly impossible to do with subtractive methods so that is the kind of application they're going after um and i think now that it's out there and, and like available to purchase hopefully we'll start to see more applications come out it's worth noting as well that gkn and partner will still run the service mm-hmm. uh, with, with machines they might even end up taking more on but that service will still um exist which might be quite handy for users who want to adopt because they can go through that method before you know putting the outlay out to actually buy the machine mm-hmm. I think just touching on something you said there, Sam, about the types of applications that, that HP are reporting. And, you know, when I spoke to, to HP at Formnext, you know, they said that um, they're now selling more and more printers purely for production applications. You know, when they started out, as the, is the trend for, for this industry in general, you know, a lot of that was for prototyping, small stage applications, and now they're looking at um, much more um, kind of like mass production applications. And they also said that, um, you know, this kind of proliferation, especially with that 170 million part milestone, um, it's a result of just how many printers are now on the market, but also just the fact that adoption rate and the usage rate of those machines is just is just really um, increasing. So um, considering they hit this milestone, and I think it was 70 million within the last 12 months, I'd be very interested to see how that changes over the next 12 months now that they're going to have metal machines out to the market with end users and still have these manufacturing partners uh, working alongside as well. Um, I expect to be doing a very similar story at far next, <laughs> next November. <laughs> Do you want to predict the number? Oh, I wouldn't dare. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're obviously not going to have time to go through the rest of the, the stories that we had, but as I mentioned, um, Sam has been working on a piece that really just spotlight all the key stories, developments, applications, all that good stuff for every single month of 2022. That's going to be going out um, on Monday, so when this podcast goes live in our usual Monday spot, um, on all your favourite podcast platforms, you'll be able to see a link to that there as well and read through some of those stories in more detail. So I just want to say thank you very much if you've joined us live today. Um, we're going to be doing uh, more of these um, live recordings of the Additive Insight podcast, more editorial roundtables. And thank you for joining us in the um, Additive Manufacturing Network. Um, please share, invite your colleagues into the network. Make sure you're posting your questions in the knowledge bar. And um, we really want this place to be um, a hub of additive manufacturing activity. And it's really yours to, to, to do that. So check out all the content we've already got. And there'll be plenty more to come um, over the next year. So. Thank you very much for listening. See you again next time. Bye.